here in Hamilton. Last time I was here, David hadn't quite arrived, and uh, the church had been newly done up, so that'll tell you how long ago it was. Uh, Good to see you this morning. I was a little bit worried when we were singing that hymn, which I didn't know about being able to go to sleep at night. I noticed the last line seemed to finish something like, um, well, I can lie down and sleep in peace. I just hope you don't do it immediately and wait till you get home. Let's uh, hear God's word. Our theme this morning will be working around the renewal of our mind, but the passages I've chosen to help us with that this morning are from Ephesians chapter 4, um, reading from verse 17 to 24, and then we'll use Romans 12, 1 to 2 as the, the kind of headline for what we're sharing this morning. Ephesians 4 um, has come to this great section of the book uh, where the doctrine that has been expounded concerning the saving of you and me, the forming of the church out of uh, a world of sinfulness through the great uh, gift of our Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work, then explodes into chapter 4, 5, and 6 as to how that's worked out in every sphere of life, beginning with the church itself and beginning with relationships within the church and spilling out into marriage and home and work and to our spiritual warfare. And in the heart of this, um, Paul suddenly recounts something that I think is the key to our transformation as Christians. Because it's one thing to know that you have been saved and redeemed and made a new creation in Christ. It's another for that to work its way in to our whole being and into the people of God. And how that's formed within us is often rather vague in our own experience. And here in these passages, I think we come across something that is so vital and often forgotten or neglected or avoided in the Christian church. And so I want you to hear these verses in relationship to the mind, to the mind as a human thing, but to the mind that belongs to to us in Christ. Hebrews, sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Sounds a bit like life today, doesn't it? You, notice that's you plural, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in 
Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, he begins to say how that works out in Christian experience and in Christian relationships and so on. Romans 12, uh, verses that we know so well, um, verses that itinerant preachers and speakers often use because it's so familiar, seems so easy to preach, has a, a powerful place in the book of Romans. The first 11 verses, the first 11 chapters, fundamentally expound the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though it applies it in different ways to Christian living, here in this chapter, um, all the rest that is to come, this working into ourselves, working into ourselves individually and as God's people, and applying that in every circumstance of life, is headlined by these two verses, which actually act like a hinge, opening the gospel into life in all its variety. Hebrews 12, sorry, I keep saying Hebrews. I've been helping somebody with the book of Hebrews and it's in my head. Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2. Again, notice the word therefore. It's concluding something and applying it. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. These great verses that we've read together are full of transformation. We hear that word all the time. And sometimes I think it's so hyped up with vision of transformation that nobody asks the question, but how? How does it happen that the gospel that saves us sanctifies us? The gospel that changes us from an old self to a new self does that in the reality of our lives day by day. It's all in the mind. The old Beatles animated film, The Yellow Submarine, which I think was a drug at the time, has a soundbite from George Harrison. It's all in the mind, he says, and kind of sums up some of the nature of this highly creative and crazy film. It seems to sum up the world in which each character or each group lives, a world of, with their own world view a world unique to themselves, a world with their own way of thinking. 
And, and we have this strange thing, don't we, in, as human beings. We, we try to boil everything down to a phrase. I know a lot of people who do cooking and baking have to reduce things in order to make things. And we have a habit of reducing things in life. So we say with George Harrison, it's all in the mind. The brain and the mind and the memory are under great scrutiny by scientists today and psychologists and a whole group of other people. BBC had a wonderful image on its website of the latest picture of the brain in new 3D movable form that takes you inside all its amazing connections. What a wonderful thing the brain is. And it looks beautiful on these images. You should track it out sometime and think, gosh, have I got a brain like that? It's not a bad idea. But some people would reduce us to just a brain. Some neuroscientists, for example, think we're nothing more than all these electrical impulses and so on that lie within the brain. There's a great vision that we'll be able to read one another's thoughts and visions and experiences and histories and memories if only we can probe right in to the brain. We're just a brain. Reminds me of a summer about 30 years ago. There was a summer 30 years ago. And the young Muslim lad, a teenager next door to us, was out in his garden doing some work, not very willingly, that his dad was forcing him to do. And he had his uh, music on full blast. And I can't quite remember the, the song itself, but it had this phrase... I'm just an animal, we're just, an a- we're just animals. And over and over again he was singing this at the top of his voice. And I went over the fence to him and he, he saw me and put his music down for a minute and said, well if you're just an animal, I should eat you up now and devour you and get peace. And we had a nice chat about, are we just animals? Am I doing something? No. Good. So, are we just animals? Because if we are, let's do anything we like. Can you see the problem when we reduce something to one element? That we are, in some ways, animals. That we are, in some way, brains. Doesn't take away from the greater reality that we are in God and in his creation. We have other trends today. Mindfulness. The mindfulness movement, a pseudo-religion in some places, really flows from Buddha's thought and practice. And real mindfulness comes with a whole package of Buddhism. So if you're mindful of being mindful, then remember that. Some of its techniques is probably quite useful for relaxing. Many people are using it for therapies. There's a special government department or section or group dealing with mindfulness. There's a plan to have it in all schools in England at least. 
it's interesting that um, Kensington and Chelsea have, uh, as a borough, have mindfulness programmes in schools for stressed out workers, etc., etc. It's used in mental health all over the place, and I guess quite a lot of the people with the Grenfell Tower disaster are wishing they had been more mindful of things that actually mattered. And yet, the mind is important. God's word calls us to be mindful, to consider, to meditate, to be renewed in our mind. The brain is part of that whole system that organizes our lives. And so our mind, our way we're thinking, affects and shapes the brain and its patterns. Just think for a moment of a habitual thought that troubles you day after day after day after day and possibly for years and years and years. Why is that? Because you've walked down that path so often that it's thickened and widened become a super highway for that thought to go up and down. The brain is functioning like that, but you are the thinking one. Relationship between our mind and our body and our brain and all these things is a very deep and profound thing. And we ought not to be afraid of it. Because if we are creatures of a God who has made us and redeemed children of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, a God who's thought this world into being, spoken it into being, a God who calls us to let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, a God who's called his people to come, let us reason together, a God who knows that the issue for this Gentile world, if you wonder why people don't easily come to Christ, people don't easily grasp the gospel, read that passage in Ephesians again. The state of the darkened, ignorant mind is so powerful and great, it needs redemption before ever it can think straight about the things that really matter. It's not that the mind has been utterly destroyed by sin, but it's been powerfully affected by sin. Somebody's hacked into it. And said, does God say? Did God say? And with these questions, we put ourselves in a place as a human race that is not where God placed us. We'd rather be God than man. But the mind is a wonderful thing. And no preacher preaching on the renewal of the mind or recognizing the darkness of the sinful mind, should ever denigrate the creation that God has made. There is a mandate of creation to follow out, using our minds, our imaginations that affect all of our lives and actions. I'm so glad we've got the gift of a mind. And you see that when Alzheimer's, 
destroys memory and thinking and logic and understanding. You see that with some deep disability where a person's thinking capacity is perhaps deeply reduced. We, we recognize the value of it. For those who are architects who've built this building and plumbers who make it work right and roofs that don't leak, though we had one in Newton Merns for about four years or five years or six, I don't know how long before we had the courage just to sort the thing out again. We've heard music this morning. What a gift. It's 30 years ago since Jacqueline Dupre died. A short life, but magnificent playing. Something unique and special. If you like literature, whether it be in comic form or in the classics, is a wonderful gift. The art of the comic is on in the Glasgow Art Gallery and Museum. And are these things to be despised? The work that you have given your life to, the things that you've thought and imagined and done and achieved, the world that you've grown to adapt to in its great speed of technology and IT communications and so on. Adapt maybe a little at least for some of us. It's an amazing thing, the mind. Sometimes the Christian in its anti-intellectual thing, one of the most horrible things that is said about learning at universities or theological colleges is that people lose their faith by degrees. I don't think people lose their faith by degrees. I think they lose their faith when they don't think properly about God and his word and come to the degree with a critical mind. That is a mind that's discerning and careful and wise and checking things out. And I was uh, in training at Strathclyde University for a social work and mental health officer type of work. Um, I found myself colliding with the new thinking about the world. Sociology, for example, that just simply thought in many cases that human beings were basically good, sort out the problems of education or finance or housing or whatever, and all will be well. I remember debating that and being shot down in flames with people wondering if I could ever make it out there in the big hard world of social work. But the truth of the matter is, sociology has gone a bit quiet. For one reason, its theories of human nature are wrong. They're humanist. Which takes me to a funeral service I was at recently. And the humanist gave us waffle. Utter waffle. Death is nothing at all. Eh? Just in the next room. But you don't believe that. How can you be in the next room if you're as dead as a dodo? And all sorts of patter to make the people feel good about their grief. But they had no message. 
Nothing to say. Not a glimmer of hope. What kind of world have we come to? The death is the end and then we dress it up as if it wasn't. If it's the end, it's the end. Let's cry. But if we're a Christian, we can't do other than refute and refuse such radically foolish ideas. So is it all in the mind? Well, yes and no. Ultimately, it's in God. So, let's be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Mark Twain once wrote, What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. I, I think that pushes it too far because I think our acts and our words reveal ultimately our thoughts. And that's precisely what Romans is teaching us, what Ephesians is saying. We can be transformed in all our life and conduct and behavior, etc., etc., by the renewing of our mind. I'm not just talking about brain here. Don't, don't get too worked up about academic or that type of thing. It's, not, it's nothing to do with that. You can be academic or not. That's not the issue. The issue is how you think. The person who can tell us best about this is Jesus Christ himself. As a man or a woman thinks in his heart, so is he. You are nothing better, whatever you show to the world, than what you think in your heart. Many years ago, in Knightswood, I was doing a children's talk, and it was about the relationship of the heart and the tongue. There's not much of a, a distance from the mind to the heart, and we're looking physically because that's the sort of way we think about things, to the tongue. Now, she was a nippy sort of lady. She often said things that were a bit hurtful or misunderstood, but she would always cover it and say, I never meant that. And I, it just so happened I used an illustration kind of like that. To indicate that when the words come out, when we say, I never meant that, we're quite untrue. What we didn't mean was for the words to come out. We meant every word of it. That's why it came out. We met it so much, we couldn't keep it in. You, you, know, you know that kind of situation? We say, well, I'm not going to say it, or I won't do this, or I won't do that. And you're in this situation, and you're, mm, before you know where you are, you've gone and done it. Because you really thought and felt that in your heart. And that's what you were going to do. How we think deep in our heart, that's what we are. 
Can you see then why we need the renewing of our mind? And that word renewing isn't just a moment, it's a continual reality of all of life. Now, how can that happen? Well, as always, Paul and the Bible writers always give us reasons for our response and how this can be shaped up. And the first important thing here is that the reasons lie somewhere outside ourselves. There are things that place us in a position where this darkened, sinful, ignorant, blind-to-God mind, unable to know him, and if it does glimpse him, suppresses the truth, as Romans 1 teaches us, that there's something mighty that needs to happen to change that situation. And that's why he says, therefore, Therefore, by the mercies of God, in view of God's mercies. Here is the whole of Romans, the whole of the gospel, being piled up right on the edge of our life today and saying, if you were a deep, darkened sinner bound for hell, if you were helpless, if you were even a Jew with the law, if you were a Gentile with your conscience only, if you were whatever, truth be told, we are all sinners deserving of God's punishment with no hope of changing our relationship with him by ourselves and no hope of changing our own lives to make them suitable to God. The new mind has to be created if we're going to begin to know God and to become like Christ. I want you to to notice something here is that Paul urges them. May I do that this morning? One of the old names for a preacher was an exhorter. To urge people Because you know what happens if you get commanded, called, demands are made. People don't want to react to that. Sometimes commands are necessary, but Paul is urging the people on the grounds of what God has done for his people and for each one individually, on the deep and amazing grounds of a Christ who came in perfect purity and gave his life For us, that our sins might be washed away, that death might be broken, that we might enter into relationship with God which would be impossible otherwise except that he would be our judge. And on in that, he urges them. We were at a school sports day on the outside of the grounds as it, as it happened. The, 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 the um, grandson who was in the sports in the morning has got some difficulties with learning and so on and does his own thing at times. And so you're never sure whether you have to be there or not. So we arrived and there he was taking part in a, 
uh, a kind of activity that involved going round the football pitch three times. And every time you went round, you got a, another point for your group. Everybody was running except him. He walked round. And he walked round three times in his own world. But he walked just past us as we came out of the car and down the lane beside it, looking through the kind of uh, mail, chain mail fence. And the four-year-old granddaughter that was with her looked in disgust. Come on, man, she's shouting. Come on, run! She's got a voice like a foghorn, I have to say. She was urging him. He's too sensitive to that, so that meant nearly tears. She couldn't fathom it. Many preachers spend their time urging God's people and it drives them to tears as well. Though first, they too must urge themselves. And every preacher knows and every pastor knows how our own urgings often fall on our own deaf ears. This is too important not to follow through. Your maturity in Christ depends on this. Your conquering of sin depends on this. Your overcoming of temptation depends on this. The unity and love and the fellowship of God's people depends on this. Our ability to weather a society that is against us depends on this. Our ability to communicate when the ears are deaf and to keep on doing it depends on this. To grow like Christ, which should be the goal of us all because it's God's goal for us, depends on this. The reason, the mercies of God and the worship of God. We're worshipping here as God's community but this is the smallest part of your worship. We often think that when we sing songs that we're worshipping and reduce it to that. Singing songs together is one part of that. An important part, of course. But this is worship just now. When you give your minds to listening to God's Word and someone trying to argue it with you, Express it to you. Urge you from it. Because to love God with all our heart and soul, etc., etc., also, in Jesus' words, include loving God with our mind. If you're a student and you do your studies well for Christ's sake and enjoy learning and discerning truth from falsehood in it and use it wisely and well in your future, you're loving God with your mind. I met with some young people recently. They made the mistake of asking me to come for their youth weekend as their speaker. You know, me nearly 90 years of age and things like that. I always say 90 because I look younger than that. But um, the, the thing was cancelled in the end. So they had a makeshift Friday night thing when everybody was exhausted. So it was a bit of a disaster. But I asked them a question. See these subjects you're studying at school or university. What has it to do with your Christian faith? 
And these intelligent young people struggled to tell me whether faith and God and the Christian mind had anything to do with architecture or business or art or music or languages or science or medicine or whatever. Except the little mantra, well, I try to be a Christian in my work or in my school or in my university. Fine. What about the young lady I knew some years ago who worked in a lab in Glasgow and they were now breaking the law of the land by doing things over in Europe that allowed it. And then subtly bringing stuff into this country to do with animals and other things that meant she was placed in a very difficult ethical position. And she came and we spoke it through. We worked through what was possibly ethical and what was possibly ethically wrong and what was possibly okay. And then she went to her boss and told him the story and basically after a few weeks he said, well you have a choice, haven't you? You either do it or you'll have to leave. Her husband had just been made redundant. That was a difficult choice. They needed the income. What do you do? I should say in the end she left her work. She found a job elsewhere. They all had to move in order to do so. He found a job also in due time. But that was her place with her vision of what God's truth was about in her work, in her livelihood, in the feeding of the family and the keeping a roof over her head. The worship of God is 24-7. In everything we do, what we watch, what we listen to, how we go about our life, the patterns of our thinking, how we handle the news, whether we wring our hands in despair or whether we turn it into prayer as we look at the state of the world, whether we vote for this party or that party, whether we, whatever we do. The whole of our life throbs with worshipping God. Worship is not a noun in the Bible. It's a verb. This used to be called a service of worship. Do you know why? Because the word service in the Bible basically is the same as the word worship. To prostrate yourself before God and to do his bidding. That's what worship is. It's not a noun to be tinkered with. It's a verb to be practiced. And that's why in the renewing of the mind, we need a rational act of worship. The word spiritual there should really be reasonable or rational. Worship's not just an experience. It's not just something to make you feel happy or feel good. It's a rational, logical act of gratitude for the grace of God. There is no other possible response to a God who has made us and redeems us in Christ than to give our whole lives to him in an endless act of worship. But then there's the pressure of the world, isn't it? which I've just hinted at in that story from a lab. Do not be 
conformed to the pattern of the world. We're living in a world that's squeezing us more and more into its own mold. The rate of communication is so high, so constant, so intense, and so unauthorized that we hardly know what's true or false that comes through our ears or our eyes anymore. And the pressure for us to conform is immense. Glad to see that the rail service has decided to do away with announcements with ladies and gentlemen for the sake of a few sensitive people, because there are only a few, who think there is no such thing as a lady and a gentleman. I never thought I was a lady or a gentleman, but I just took that as an overall way of saying, Hiya, folks. And so we got a great fuss that we may be upsetting people who don't believe in genders quite the way we've done in history. I'm sympathetic to all situations of people's lives, but I'm also unsympathetic to the pressure of the world to box everybody into somebody else's way of thinking, whatever that might be. How we handle all these issues is a different question. But the pressure of the world is on us all the time. It's unrelenting. It's often deliberate. It's aimed, in many cases, at Christians themselves. So, be transformed. The great reversal. Someone has done this pattern. I don't know if you can see it very well, but what I've got there in front of you is a chart from Romans 1, verse 18 to 32, selecting some of the key things about the mind. So, worship created things, not the creator. That's the way the world went. Degraded our bodies. Sexual impurity, a depraved mind, and filled with every kind of wickedness. But the new, there's a spiritual worship offering our bodies which materializes and embodies Christianity. Faith is not something only in the head. The mind is part of the body. The body here means the whole self. Our imaginations, our thoughts, our conscience, our feelings, our willing, our doing, and everything else that we express and do and live out in this body that God has given us. Never underestimate that. Christ hallowed this thing and all that we are by coming as a babe in Bethlehem and lived pure, godlike life, that one day we might be like him and live that God-like life too and offer a holy sacrifice and the mind being renewed and not conforming to the world. That is the great reversal. Romans Is revealing that to us. That's the only point I want to make from that. Essentially, you can check it out for yourself. Romans 1 and Romans 12, 1 to 2. 
So be transformed by a renewed mind. One that Ephesians said to us was simply that it, we were taught the truth in Christ. We live in a world of pluralism where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and nobody knows what truth is. And that be, how can that be true? Ask questions about what the world says. That's what the new mind does. What on earth are we thinking that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth? It means there is no truth in that in itself. What you believe might be true, but it's only true because it is true, not because you think it's true. It's because you believe now it's true. Truth lies beyond us and enters us. And we were taught truth, which is the word for reality. The Christian is the only person in this world who ever properly lives in a reality show. Because it belongs to the reality of Christ. And that reality meant we were created to be like God. Now, some people have taken that, that we can suddenly become totally divine. And so that's why many of the religions and the movements of this world keep saying is, we're just all gods. We're God inside. We really are God. But that's not what it says in Ephesians. It says, created to be like God in righteousness, which is right relationships with him, with the world, with one another, with ourselves. In right living. And holiness set apart for God to share his holiness too. So a mind that's been renewed is renewed into that pattern so we can live in the world properly, wisely and well with its pattern. The Christian church for a long while seemed out of touch with culture now the Christian church seems to be drowning in culture. We've entered it to be near people to share the gospel because they're so far away from the gospel in their own lives that we've forgotten that part of our genius as people in Christ is difference and distinction. And if it should be we get persecuted for that, praise God and bless his holy name that he's making us a bit more like Jesus Christ. When the militant atheists had the banners in London buses about there is no God kind of thing, God doesn't exist, there were Christians wringing their hands in despair. I thought it was wonderful. Imagine going on a bus and sitting beside somebody and saying, did you see that thing? Oh yeah, that's right, God doesn't exist. You think, well that's true. I don't. What's the problem? They said worse to Jesus and then put him on a cross. I doubt if you'd have given it a look. It's so minor. And what is an atheist? Somebody that doesn't fundamentally believe anything except what? Whatever he likes. On what grounds? Hard to find. Richard Dawkins even thinks death makes living in a world without meaning more meaningful because you're living on the edge all the time. 
Welcome to his black hole. Ephesians reminds us to be renewed in mind, in thinking, in mindset, and in its power. It spoke about the attitudes of our mind. Your mindset determines everything. Someone was doing some work in our house the other day there, and he spoke to me uh, a, a little bit, and he was telling me he was a bit of a family man now. He likes being near his children and so on. And uh, he started saying, what, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm retired. He said, well, what did you retire from? I said, oh, as a minister. Oh, he said, oh. And then he, had, he said, my wife nearly died a few years ago. I was brought up in a church. Went to BB, Sunday school, Bible class, church. She nearly died, and I lost my faith. He said, mind you, it's funny. The mother-in-law, who never believed anything and never went near church, started going to church the Sunday after my wife pulled through. He says, it must be different evidence. I said, no evidence at all. The evidence itself has to be interpreted. The real question for me is, can you trust God if your wife dies than if she lives? That's always the question. Can we trust God? Is he big enough, great enough, sovereign enough, loving enough, able enough to deal with everything in life? The renewed mind holds on to that. So it's able to sleep in peace. Sometimes Christians think that just having a warm heart is enough. Somebody once wrote, a burning heart is not nourished by an empty head. That's right. If we live on the level of emotion and experience, that will run into the sand unless it's fed with the depth of the wisdom of God, with increasing knowledge of who he is, of growing in knowledge of Christ and his works and his ways, of the will and purpose of God, of soaking ourselves and saturating ourselves in Scripture. One of my daughters the other day there was with her, her daughters um, watching a program on television which went on for an hour, interesting enough, but not all that earth-shaking. And I'm not criticizing her for it. But it occurred to her somewhere through that we say we don't have much time to read God's Word and feed on it. That is not true. We just don't make the time, which means we don't think this is food for the mind and heart and soul. We don't think this is as ultimate as we say. We don't think this really, really matters for our salvation, for our perseverance, and for our being able to tackle a world that doesn't think the Christian godly way. It never has. It's just with a shrinking church presence in Britain, we imagine the world has changed from what it once was. Not true. Never since Eden has the world thought God's ways. 
So our task is to make sure we do in order that we can give a reason for the faith within us as Peter instructs us to do. And for our own lives as churches, not in the the kind of vocational things of life, who you marry, where you stay, what job you take. God expects us to work that out in faith and prayer and consultation and working with the principles of his word. Too many of us hunt around like mad looking for his guidance and all these kind of things when he's actually saying to us, I'll give you wisdom, believe that, go and make a good decision. But for the rest of the stuff, the stuff that belongs to his will for shaping the world, for living our lives, for ethics and morals, for the decisions of the church and its life and its work in every way, for God's will which is good and right and true, that phrase in Ephesians chapter 5, the fruit of light and the fruit of righteousness is found in all that is good and right and true. Every Christian should give their mind to everything that's good and right and true. Fill it and flood it with that and there won't be much room for anything else. It won't silt up if it's flowing in day by day. And when we do, we test and approve God's will, which is good, which is pleasing, which is perfect. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Is it all in the mind? Well, in the big comprehensive way of the Bible, maybe the phrase is not quite good enough. But it is the key to being transformed. The mind is not a bit of us. Neither is the heart or the will, or the imagination. That's why Paul uses the word bodies in Romans 12. It's just the whole self-thinking, or the whole self-feeling, or the whole self-deciding, or the whole self-imagining, whatever it is, so that the whole self will be conducting itself according to the will and way of God. I find that deeply challenging. Still, in my older age, that my mind needs to keep on being renewed. And I want that, because I want to be like Jesus Christ. Don't you? Well, I'm putting the key in your hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts and ways beyond our imagining, whose wisdom is displayed in Jesus Christ who gave his life upon a cross, a wisdom that the world mocks at, confident in its own powers of mind and soul. But in the end, God's foolishness 
is greater than the wisdom of men. For all our great achievements and great wisdom, Lord, truth is, everything we touch is ruined. We have drugs to help us be healed, and we use it to kill many lives. We have nuclear power to light our homes, fire up our businesses, and it's there to destroy. We have modern communications which can keep us in touch with family thousands of miles away, which can help us to log on to so many wonderful things, and yet it's at the heart of most evil that's taking place in the world today. Oh, our wisdom isn't so wise, Lord. And so we ask you that you who have created us to be like you in righteousness and holiness, O God, and have given us to know the mind of Christ and given us your word that we might know it and see it more clearly day by day and the mighty power of your spirit within to enable us to think like Christ. Will you do that for us, together as your people and as individual followers of Jesus Christ? And if any of us here have darkened minds that do not know you, enlighten them, Lord, today by your word and by your spirit, that they too might come to worship you the living God. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.